Sadly, I have never met Julie Andrews in person, but she is still part of some of my favorite childhood memories. I spent hours watching her twirling through green hills that were apparently alive with the sound of music, knew every word of every song from Mary Poppins, and ate up the relationship between Mia Thermopolis and her royal grandmother in The Princess Diaries with my own grandmother. Julie Andrews has loomed large in my life for basically as long as I can remember. But Julie Andrews is more than an elegant movie star. She's also a beloved author, and on episode 197, my guests and I discuss her first published work, Mandy. Mandy hit shelves in 1971 and, as you'll soon hear, was way ahead of its time in many ways. I truly can't get over how emotionally complex the story is. Add it to the list of reasons to love Julie Andrews. Mandy tells the story of an orphan girl named Mandy, who stumbles on a magical cottage that she decides to secretly make her own. Mandy has been happy enough at the orphanage, which, to its credit, is not the kind of dark, miserable place we're used to seeing in literature. But she still longs for a different kind of home. For months, she sneaks away to the cottage whenever she can. When her hard work in the cold weather causes a case of pneumonia, Mandy finds herself welcomed into the home of Bill and Anne, who own the cottage and the property it sits on. Originally, the plan is for her to stay there until she recovers from her illness, but as you can imagine, she ends up sticking around a little longer. Don't worry, listeners, it's a happy ending for Mandy. Today, my guests and I discuss all of these plot points. We also fangirl over Julie Andrews, consider why orphan stories are so prevalent in pop culture and literature, compare and contrast Mandy to A Little Princess, chat about the role of luck in the novel, and look closely at the emotional complexity and mental health language used on the page. There is a very brief mention of sexual abuse early in the episode, so be prepared for that and skip ahead if you need to. Meet today's guest, Erin LaRosa. Erin has three daughters, two feline and one human. She loves pop culture and celebrity anything. If you follow her on social, you're going to see a lot of food, cats, and books. Find her at Erin LaRosa Lit on Twitter and Instagram. Erin is a romance author, and her new book, For Butter or Worse, is out on July 26, 2022. We are getting closer and closer to the 200 episode mark over here, and I would love to get the celebrations rolling with a few new five-star ratings and reviews. If you're enjoying the show, please consider taking a few moments to post a rating or review on your go-to listening platform. You can also spread the word about SSR by posting this episode to your Instagram story. Take a screenshot of it, yes, like right now, add that screenshot to your story, and tag me at SSRPod so I can see when you post. Let's make this community even bigger and more fantastic. If you're not already, make sure you're staying on top of all things SSR by following along on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Get even more involved by becoming a patron. You can do this for as little as $1 per month. At each tier of support, you'll get access to unique exclusive rewards, from an invite to our Discord channel and the Shit We Read book club, to monthly videos and bonus episodes. Get all the details at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I'm an independent podcaster, which means I operate without the backing of a larger organization. The contributions I receive from patrons make a huge difference as I continue to grow the show. Plus, I love getting to know the Patreon community. Episode 197 is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, Unforgiven by Rebecca Zanetti. Kirkus Reviews has called Zanetti a master of romantic suspense, and in Unforgiven, she introduces readers to a game theory expert, a philosophy professor with a hot British accent, and a passionate, twisty romance. You can find Unforgiven wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. As always, I would love to point all of the audiobook lovers in the audience in the direction of Libro FM, which is my audiobook platform of choice. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. We all rely on Amazon for a lot of things. But since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately no matter where you buy them, this is a great place to make the switch. 
The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Erin. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. I feel like I should be singing because we are talking <laughs> about a book by the one and only Julie Andrews, Edwards. It's important that we put Edwards at the end, but this is Julie Andrews we're talking about. Queen of Genovia, Lady Whistledown, perfection. Mm-hmm. Which is your favorite Julie Andrews? I mean, you know, I I am in this phase right now with my two-year-old where all she wants to listen to is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's her favorite song to dance around the room to. <laughs> so I guess I'll say Mary Poppins because she's helping me take care of my child, even though she doesn't know it. Okay. So you're really in a Mary Poppins moment right now. Right now in my life. Yeah. How about you? Oh, I am. How do you solve a problem like Maria all day, every day? (laughs) I grew up sitting in my grandparents' basement, watching on their huge, like, you know, those big box TVs that it was like on their brown and orange shag carpet left over from the (laughs) seventies. And it was a constant rotation of The Sound of Music, Oklahoma, State Fair, occasionally Mary Poppins, but they really were more Rodgers and Hammerstein people. I know that those old musicals are problematic, but I love The Sound of Music and I will never stop loving it. You're not alone. Just magic. Like they, I'm going to sound old, but like they do not make movies like that anymore. I think also there's something about Dame Julie Andrews where she just like has this glow about her that a lot of movie stars have, but she's one of them. And it's like anytime she steps on screen, she's kind of like, there's glitter just kind of around her without there actually being glitter. She's one of those people that really draws you in. Have you by any chance read her memoir? No, but here's what I did. I did a really deep dive on her after reading this book. Cause I was like, where did she pull the inspiration for this? She has had such a wild and like up and down kind of life and especially her childhood because I'm sure you're referencing this because you read it so you must know all of these things that I'm referencing. Yeah so I cannot recommend her memoir enough specifically on audio because she reads it Yeah, and I have this very specific memory of that reading experience because I was riding the subway. I was going into the city to meet a friend from my home in Brooklyn back when I lived in New York and the subway got stuck. And after living in New York for eight, nine years at that point, I had never experienced being stuck in a subway to this extent. Like no lights, no air, like full scary shutdown. And I'm claustrophobic and it was a packed subway. And Erin, I had Julie Andrews in my ears (laughs) and it really helped. And it wasn't like a very dark part of the story because as you referenced, she had a really tough childhood, which you would never guess based on no. like the kinds of characters that she played. Never. And her like soothing voice got me through that extremely scary moment. And I have to tell you that as I was reading Mandy, the book we're talking about today, I couldn't help but hear her. Like I heard her reading every word. Well, funny you should mention that because when I was looking for how to consume this book, I know that I know that you kind of only listen to certain audiobooks. Like you're more of a nonfiction gal with audiobooks, right? Oh, you've done your homework about me. <laughs> oh, I listen to this podcast. Don't you worry. <laughs> so I actually found a recording of her reading Mandy on YouTube. And any of your listeners should look this up because it's a delight. It's like a four-part 
video. You can hear her reading every single word. It was so magical and lovely because this book is really lovely. And you just like hearing her voice do it, like to your point, it just all works together. That's awesome. I'm going to find the link to that and include it in the show notes. I'll also, listeners, grab the link to listen to her memoir. I believe it's called Homework on Libro FM, which is my listening platform of choice. And I'll include that in the show notes as well. I'll post it to SSR's Instagram too, if you want to check that out this week, maybe for upcoming summer road trips. But Erin, let's get into Mandy. Why did you want to read this book for today's episode? Did you read this book when you were a kid or was this totally new to you? So this was totally new to me. And I, you know, felt actually pretty embarrassed that I didn't know that she wrote a lot of children's books, like not just Mandy, but many, many children's books, including one starring a cat. And I'm a cat lady, and I should be reading books starring cats is my point of view. (laughs) But I saw her, her name on the list of book options. And I was like, excuse me, Dame Julie Andrews wrote a children's book. I need to read this book. And so the other the other part of why I thought this might work for me is that I used to really be into orphan stories as a kid, like A Little Princess, Secret Garden. I don't know what it is about that like story of a girl whose family just either is killed or like they never had a family. But there was something about that 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 really spoke to me as a child, I think, because I always had a little bit of that morbid curiosity of like, well, what would happen to me if my parent died? Like, what where would, I, would I go to an orphanage? Would I go to my evil aunt's house or, you know, whatever? And maybe a lot of other little girls had that. Fantasy is not the right word, but like kind of curiosity around that. So when I was going into this book, I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised that it was very different from a lot of the orphan stories that I've previously consumed as a kid. But yeah. So different. And we have talked about our share of orphan stories on the podcast. I bet. (laughs) I bet. Oh, yeah. We actually did A Little Princess not too long ago, which having read that probably in February or March and now we're now recording in May. It was a complete like flip in so many ways from A Little Princess. And at the same time, it felt like such a good companion read to Mm -hmm. it because- You do have some similar themes. I think that the protagonists have some things in common. But let's talk a little bit more about like, why are we so obsessed with orphan (laughs) stories? I bring this up with guests often, although it's been a while since we talked about it. I mean, you you mentioned a little bit, which I I think is true for a lot of people like this. You're right. Fantasy is not the right word because that makes it sound like it's aspirational, which it's not. And of course, these are fights that real kids deal with all the time. But I wonder if when you're a kid and and you're sort of wrapping your head around the idea of mortality and what that means, imagining having to navigate the world without your primary caregivers, like maybe that is sort of the first step into that cognitive process. I don't know. I think that's part of it for sure. And I know like I always felt a little bit lonely as a kid. Like I had a sibling, I had both of my parents, but I was a real shy introvert and I would escape into books a lot, probably like all of your uh, listeners here and yourself. But there was something about that story of an orphan where they feel like they don't really belong, they don't have a home, they don't really have a sense of like, this is my place. And I felt that way a lot as a kid um, when I was in school where I kind of felt like I didn't really want to be there. And I felt like I, I wasn't sure if I really had a strong friend group and my my books were my friends a lot or things like that. And I feel like there's a little bit of that in these orphan stories too, where it does a lot with that idea of loneliness and trying to find your place. And definitely Mandy is all about like, you know, she just wants to feel like she has something of of her own and feel like she belongs somewhere. Yes, I agree with all of that. I think that something that happens in an orphan story is that it gives the kid characters the opportunity to play the hero in Mm -hmm. some way. And sometimes that looks like daring adventure. And sometimes like in Mandy, it looks like a kid really like figuring herself out and taking on her problems and like becoming resourceful. I also think, and this is something that occurs to me now, I think I had a conversation about this with somebody recently or like a variation on this conversation, but I think books now, like YA books specifically and middle grade books tend to involve families a lot more. And I wonder if it's because authors 
in the 21st century feel more comfortable taking on like the wide range of stresses that can plague a family. And like, I just think that there's more space now for conversations in pop culture meant for kids about subjects that maybe once were considered like adult or reserved for adults. Because as soon as you bring in like a larger family, there are like grown up issues that are kind of like a necessity to talk about, whether it's like financial struggles or marital strife or illness or addiction, like all of these things. When you don't have a family unit and it's just a kid like out on their own, you don't have to face any of those things as an author and you're still being authentic to a kid's experience. And so I wonder if that's part of it. Like, I wonder if authors in days gone by really just wanted to focus in on kids stuff. Not to say that Mandy's experience or Sarah's experience in A Little Princess is happy and sunshine because it's not, but it's almost like authors sort of got to keep more of tunnel vision about what is going on in these kids' lives. I think that's really interesting. And I had never thought about it that way. And I feel like I've consumed so much content, especially as a kid, like with all of the Disney movies, there's always a dead mom, like the moms are always dead. Someone's being killed off, or they don't have parents. And to your point, like, it does kind of like isolate that, that hero character, then and you can focus on their journey. That's really, really interesting. Just a thought, listeners, let us know what you think. Send me a DM or, or or share in a post for this episode over on Instagram. But let's get into Mandy. So this book was written in 1971. Um, I don't know if you had the same. Well, I guess if you listened on audio, did you have like an author's note? There was not an author's note, no. What was the author's note? Okay, so the author's note is from our girl, Julie. And I think, excuse any page turning listeners, but it was It was in the edition that came out, I guess, for the 30th anniversary of the book. And she talks about the inspiration for Mandy. It was the first book that she wrote. Right. And basically, she talks about how she had been on a vacation with her husband or her then husband in 1968. They were in Ireland. She was making a movie. So I guess it wasn't really a vacation, but she was taking a day to spend time with her family. And they were on this thousand acre estate that was enclosed with stone walls, very much like the estate that we see in the book. And it was really wonderful because she was there with her family and they got to experience all of the nature in this space. There were stables and kennels, a dairy, a cemetery, like all of these things. And she loved to play on these grounds with her children. And at one point she was playing with her daughter, Jennifer, and she doesn't say what the game was, but she was playing a game with Jennifer. And Jennifer told her that if she beat her mom, Julie, in this game, that she wanted to have stakes. So as Julie describes it, The question became, what should the forfeit be? Easy, said Jenny. Write me a story. Wow. Yeah. She goes on to write, I was preparing to dash off a couple of paragraphs, a quick attempt at a fable, but the image at the little shell cottage came back to haunt me, and thus I began this book. Some two years later, it became my first published work. It's hard to believe that Mandy is now celebrating its 30th anniversary. I am told that it has inspired many children to want to read more. I am thrilled and delighted. I enjoyed writing it so much, but never dreamed at the time of the many rewards that would result from that one magical summer. So she talks about how her like family was just so taken with this estate and how magical it was and how she just kind of wanted to explore that on the page. That is so charming. <laughs> of course, of course, that's how she came about with this book. Well, I'm glad that you read that because... Part of why I did some digging on her, I was like, well, I wonder, yeah, where that inspiration came from. And I, you know, I do think that while she's telling the truth, right, like she was playing a game with her daughter, she wrote this for her daughter, there's the little cottage. I was thinking too, when I was going through, and I don't know if you agree here, but like when I was hearing about her past and her history of feeling like, I guess we can kind of talk about that a little here, but like she came from, I guess you would say like a broken home right like her her mom had an affair she was the product of an affair her parents divorced when she was young she lived with her mom and her mom married a very bad no good terrible man who would try to get into bed with her when she was a teenager and so she had to buy a lock for her bedroom door so that when he got drunk he like wouldn't try to come in and she talks a lot about feeling kind of like lonely and shuffled around. And when I was reading the book and and Mandy talks a lot about home and feeling secure, I was like, oh my gosh, Julie Andrews 
never felt secure, right, in her home. She never felt like she had a place or a family, really, because she was being shuffled around. She had to protect herself and look out for herself. And so this book, which is a really, like, felt like a a warm cup of tea, the way that, like, the Great British Baking Show feels good and makes you feel really good inside, I think also comes from a place of like knowing what it is to feel like you are abandoned and need to find some sense of security. That's also beautifully said. And, and I agree. And I also think that what she's done here, and you mentioned this earlier, is that like this book turns the orphan story on its head in a lot of ways. And it's almost as if the author, Julie Andrews Edwards, is acknowledging like, yes, there are kids like Mandy who go through terrible times because she was a kid like Mandy who went through terrible times. And it's it felt a little bit like she was rewriting history in a few ways in this book, because of course, there is such a happy ending where she gets the real home that she wants. But even at the beginning of the book, when she's in the orphanage, she has a pretty happy life. And so it's as if Julie Andrews Edwards, I feel like I like keep calling her different things, but it's so funny. Julie. Dame it's so weird. Julie. Dame Julie. Queen Julie. of Genovia. Lady Whistledown. Yeah. Edwards. Jules. Yeah, we could go on. <laughs> um, Mary Poppins. It's almost like at the beginning, even when Mandy is at her lowest in the book, like she's still rewriting history because Mandy, though she is alone, is happy. Like she yeah. has been at this orphanage for so long that she's so beloved by everybody who is there. And like, the woman who runs the orphanage is like lovely and not in any way like Miss Hannigan or any of the other like similar characters that we know from pop culture. I took notes on that lady. Yeah. Tell me more. They describe her as a matron who oversees 30 children, oversees the laundry, the food, the cleaning, and quote unquote maintains discipline, but <laughs> make sure that the kids are all taken care of. And I was like, who is this woman overseeing 30 children when I can barely keep track of my one two-year-old? But I did re-listen to the beginning a little bit today. The only, because I also was like, well, she seemed pretty charmed. The only mention of unhappiness is like a little bit at the beginning where Mandy kind of confesses that sometimes she'll get, I think what she calls an episode where she feels like a deep pit of despair and loneliness that she doesn't know how to deal with and will kind of get into like a crying, sobbing fit and call it like she's having one of her episodes. And it's mentioned up top and then I think never again but I was re-listening to it and I was like, oh my God, that's so, it was really, bro- it broke my heart to like hear that described because I, I think so many kids also go through periods of their life where they have that feeling of just complete despair over, you know, whatever little thing. But in this book in particular, because it's described in terms of like, you know, I think she says it is like she doesn't have her parents and she doesn't have a home. So there's this pit of emptiness in her that sometimes bubbles up. I pulled out one line that says, I'm having one of my attacks again, she would think. There it is, attacks. Yeah. Trying not to let people see her tears. She does use the word episode also. Okay. And I, I did want to dive in to the emotional complexity of this book because it is stunning and amazing. It's so different to anything that I've ever read for the podcast, especially written in this time period. Um, We talk about this all the time on the show because we are fortunately moving in a direction as a collective, I think, where we're talking more openly about mental health, where we are, I think, most importantly, giving kids a language to use to talk about their feelings. We are teaching people of all ages, words like depression and anxiety and how to use them and how to ask for help when they need it. And there are books that we've read for the podcast that were written many years ago where we have characters that seem sad, that are going through hard things. I often notice adult characters sort of secondary to the kid main character who like we can see a mom who is having a hard time because of a loss that she's experienced or We get hints of the larger family having financial strife, but we almost never in books written, I don't know, prior to like 1990, maybe even 2000, see the word depression, depressed. We never see a a young character, and I would take that a step further and say like a young girl 
have permission to like be fully emotionally complex and realized. And that is who Mandy is. She is charming. She is this like magical little 10 year old who is building a garden and enjoying the outdoors and has all of these dreams of like making her home somewhere new. But she also pretty openly talks about being sad and being alone. And I just have never read anything like it. Even I think more contemporary middle grade hints at this, but this is like really direct. Yeah, there's a lot of moments where she kind of expresses her wants and desires and it all ties back into how she's feeling and experiencing things. Like there's this one part where she's kind of fantasizing about, you know, she's found this abandoned cottage. She wants to redo it so that it's a cottage of her own where she can go live. And she's in a store and sees little packets of tea and biscuits. And she's fantasizing about like, oh, wouldn't it just be incredible if I could earn enough money to to buy some tea and biscuits and then my house would feel complete and I would feel happy, you know, kind of acknowledging that at the moment she doesn't feel happy. And if she can kind of fulfill this fantasy of her, she feels like, you know, all of her problems will be solved. And I think also later in the book, especially when she's kind of been rescued, you know, she, she catches pneumonia because she's working so hard at the house and it's her deepest desire to be there. And she's afraid it's about to be taken from her. So she goes there and then is brought to the property owner's house and just feels like she's in this big, warm environment that isn't really hers, but she's been in it and she can feel her enjoying the fact that she's being taken care of for maybe the first time in her life, like having parental figures, but the sadness that maybe the matron from the orphanage will come back and take her back. And all of those emotions are expressed to your point. Like they, they really go through the range. And I felt for her in those moments where I was like, I don't want you to be taken back to the orphanage either, Mandy, like, please stay there. Yeah, please stay there. I hope nobody takes you away. Um, so yeah, I mean, just get to the end of the book, which you just described. Mandy gets the opportunity to go stay at the home of the Richardsons because she's too sick to be moved. And they fall in love with her, obviously, because she's Mandy. And much like Julie Andrews, like you can't help but fall in love with her. And like you said, Erin, like she's really happy, but she's also really sad, which is, I think, a feeling that like so many of us can connect to. I pulled out one line that says, it was a surprise to discover that feeling this good was actually a painful experience. Mm. And I, even as I read it out loud now, like, I love that because I think, and I don't have kids, but so I'd love, I'd love your take on this being a mom and being a human, of course. I think that like, there's this thing that many of us are taught that like, you should never be unhappy and that it's like bad. It's like this toxic positivity thing is maybe what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Where like to acknowledge all the nuances of a happy moment and in doing so to like express the fear that that happy mo- moment is going to be over means that you're not appreciating that happy moment and that you can never betray that part of you that's like, I'm scared that this is going to be over. Like not only are you not allowed to be sad, but you're also not allowed to be upset that something is over. It's that whole thing of like, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. And like, yes to all of that. Life is of course a roller coaster if we're going to be cliche and like there are highs and lows. And if you spend all of your life either being unhappy or when you're happy, like anticipating being unhappy, that is going to be really difficult. And as so many of us have experienced the highs and lows of our own mental health, like we, we know that that's tough. And sometimes that's just the reality. But I really enjoy in this book, and I think it was probably very ahead of its time, that Julie Andrews is like giving kids permission to be like, no, like it's okay to kind of like feel crummy about stuff, even if you're happy. Yeah. And I think especially when you remember this was in the 70s that this was published, because I, you know, I'm a child who grew up in the predominantly 90s, and my parents were of the type of like, don't cry. You're okay. Everything's okay. And I think that was like a big kind of trend at that point. It was like, you're okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it kind of thing. And we, we as a family didn't really talk about our emotions a lot. And so 
yeah, I think this is extremely progressive um, in showing, you know, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to want to be happy. It's okay to be confused by those emotions and not sure how to deal with them. At one point in the book, when she's at the, is it the Richards or the Richardsons? I think it's the Richardsons. Richardsons house. She's so happy and afraid of the happiness going away that I remember she just shuts her eyes and goes back to sleep because she doesn't want it to go away. And, you know, for me, like raising a two-year-old right now in Los Angeles, especially probably, um, everything is extremely, and, and a lot of the parenting books now are catered toward like, you need to acknowledge your child's feelings, you need to tell them it's okay to be sad, you know, ask how they're feeling, do check-ins. At my at my daughter's school, they have a um, emotion book where they have 32 different emotions with matching facial expressions. So if uh, your kid is like feeling overwhelmed, anxious, whatever, they like bring the emotion chart to the child and they're like, how are you feeling? Can you point to one of these faces? <laughs> so that they have like all of these different ways to express, I'm feeling this way in this moment or or whatever. So it's a totally different world, at least in Los Angeles versus how I grew up and for sure how it was uh, when this book was first published. I would be like, can I point to all of these feelings at the same time at every minute of the day? Yeah, it's it's all 32 for me. Always, at all times. Um, <laughs> I wanted to read a couple of other lines that I thought really captured this emotional complexity. She submitted to the worst depression of her whole life. I mean, I'm just going to pause there to say I cannot believe that that gets to be in a children's book written in 1971. Right. She tried to tell herself that it was selfish to feel this way after having had such a wonderful Christmas. She was so much luckier than the other children at the orphanage, but it didn't help because although she felt guilty, she wanted desperately for the happiness to go on. She wanted to hold on to it and keep it for always. Ugh. A bit later on, we see, but now she was not prepared to settle for anything less than she had already experienced. If Bill and Anne, those are the Richardsons, could not take care of her and be her family, then she would go and find someone who could. These lines just break your heart. They break you. And I think what we're seeing is this character who is emerging into somebody who is, is learning to advocate for herself emotionally, which like I'm still learning to do as a 31 year old. <laughs> yeah. My therapist and I have a lot of conversations about that. I was going to invoke my therapist here too because of the use of the word selfish and her like the guilt that she's experiencing about selfishness. I just had a conversation with my therapist last week about swapping out the phrase self-serving for the phrase selfish, which I think is great. Everybody, that one's for free. Enjoy it. But I like connected with Mandy so much because I, like you do, like you're like, oh, if I, I'm not allowed to have a feeling because... It would be selfish of me to still be upset when something so great happened. Yeah. I could go on and on about this. I just think it's fascinating. Well, it's also interesting when you think about, you know, like I think growing up during the time when we did, there are a lot of pressures on women, you know, to behave certain ways, to act certain ways, to fit into certain molds, obviously still. And so, you know, a lot of the things that I remember, especially, um, you know, I've worked at places like Netflix and BuzzFeed and Amazon, like in more managerial executive roles. And so as someone in a leadership position, it was always kind of like expected that you don't show too much emotion. It's like that CEO mentality they tell you to take on where like you take on the CEO tone and you're kind of neutral. And I always had a really hard time with that because I'm a very empathetic person and I, I just take on a lot of emotions. Um, and I think that actually made me stronger as a person. But I remember a lot of the coaching that I got was to kind of turn off any kind of emotion you had, stay really neutral. And the times when I felt like I would speak up or express how I was feeling, I was then treated a little bit differently by male colleagues. So I think it's it also is indicative of like the fact that Mandy is a little girl and, and telling a lot that she's able to express herself is so empowering for, for women to read. Even today, you know, like us reading these now, I'm like, yeah, of course she should not like settle for anything less than what she's gotten used to. Like, that's a great lesson. 
Yeah, I'm like, I'm a 31-year-old woman in 2022, and I'm reading about this 10-year-old girl in 1971, (laughs) and I'm like, you have so much to teach me. (laughs) I have so much to learn from you, Mandy. Um, One of the other things that I really love about Mandy as a character is that she is not perfect. And I do want to take a moment to compare her to Sarah from A Little Princess. Mm. And listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. My guest, Danya, and I um, have a theory that Sarah from A Little Princess was the original manifesting babe um, and that she <laughs> like started the trend of like manifesting whatever you want, no matter how terrible things are. And like, that's a book about toxic positivity for sure. Mm. But one of the really kind of off-putting things about that book, and there's a lot to love about that book, of course, but something that was harder for me to swallow was the fact that Sarah is just like always good, no matter what. And I think that speaks to what we've been talking about already, Erin, and that like, it made me frustrated as a reader that a kid like Sarah, who had been like truly to hell and back, still managed to always have a happy attitude. And like, look, more power to you if you can do that. But I think to set kids up with that as an expectation is just unfair. And, And I think ultimately probably dangerous because it forces kids like not to address their emotions or to be honest about how they're feeling. Mandy, on the other hand is not perfect. She has dark thoughts. She knows how to process them, at least to herself. She steals things to get what she wants. My favorite. She lies to her friend, Sue. Well, kind of her frenemy. Like, I don't know that Sue is really her friend. Man. Sue, the snitch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, Mandy does what she has to do. What do you think about her as this, like, kind of complicated, (laughs) mischievous kid? Well, you know, like, I think she reminded me a lot of myself. And, you know, my mom, my mom is definitely like a very funny woman who always encouraged me to kind of like, just go after whatever I wanted. Little white lies are okay. Like, like, as long as they don't hurt anyone, that kind of a thing. So I feel like when I was a kid, I did a lot of kind of like, mischievous things that probably wouldn't be encouraged and would make me like, Maybe maybe not the Sarah, I'd be more like the Mandy. So I found it really refreshing. And I like when female characters are able to to have these kind of like moments of just getting what they want by whatever means necessary. And I, I you know, I think you can't fault Mandy when you read these pages because you want her to succeed. So you're like, yeah, go ahead. Like steal, borrow, lie, whatever to get to the place you need to be. But, you know, I think the way it's written too, it never comes off as like something that you're like, wow, Mandy is like kind of a loose cannon or something like that. You know, you're reading it and you're like, oh yeah, I feel for you, Mandy. And Mandy usually, I feel like kind of knows what she's doing is not right and acknowledges that. And I think that helps make it all feel pretty good. And like, I'm rooting for her. Well, the stealing is especially hard for her. So Mandy, in pursuit of like fixing up the cabin that she found to her specifications that it can be perfect, she takes things from the orphanage's groundskeeper and also from this store where she works. Jake is- I have to talk about Jake. I have to talk about Jake. Let's talk about Jake. Let's take a moment for Jake. I took notes on Jake. This is like, so what I was, I was feeling really like, you know, I, I love consuming a lot of like British shows because they always have funny side characters. And even when you watch like a lot of their reality shows, they'll like kind of focus on these little side characters, which I think add a lot of charm. But with Jake, I I feel like this was my favorite side character because the way they describe him up top is like, yeah, he's the groundskeeper. And his his routine is that at lunch, he has two beers every single day and then takes an afternoon snooze. And so when we first, I mean, I was like, (laughs) this like alcoholic gardener, just like at the orphanage. But when we first meet him, he's on beer number two, he's like wiping sweat from his brow, Mandy's asking to borrow something. And he's like, Mandy, you know, I'm almost due for my nap, right? And she's like, (laughs) can um, we hurry this up? (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, okay, but like, just please this one time, give me a shot. And he's like, and he takes like what, what is described as like a long swig of beer. And then is like, all right, whatever, I've got to go nap. So yeah, I, (laughs) I loved him. Yeah. I loved him too. And he, with his 
unique routine plays a role in helping Mandy to like sneak some things away that she doesn't want anybody to know about. And Mm -hmm. when the, um, the matron birdie who is the head of the orphanage catches wind of the fact that things are disappearing, she like addresses all of the kids kind of one of those moments where it's like somebody can step forward and be honest or everybody's going to get in trouble. And I love the fact that Mandy like both feels really guilty in that moment, but doesn't own up to it. (laughs) Let me tell you something. When I was in sixth grade, there were a big box of cookies on the table. They were uh, sprinkle sugar cookies. Okay, so no one can resist those. No, they were unopened. I did not know what they were for. But I took them and I fed them to my sixth grade class. Turns out they were for the second graders. It was like their field day, a mom had brought them in. So all of the sixth graders were brought into a um, assembly room. And because they were sprinkle cookies, our hands were covered with like all of these sprinkle colors all over our hands, right? So we had to show our hands. Everyone had the evidence on their hands. And it was one of those things where they were like, please step forward. If just one person steps forward. Now, let me tell you something. I did not step forward, okay? But I, it was eventually someone ratted me out. A Sue among my class mm-hmm. ratted me out, and I had to write an apology letter to the second graders and reimburse them the money for the cookies. So anyways, I feel Mandy very deeply in this moment, and I think she did the right thing. I think you are Mandy. <laughs> Thank you, Allie. Thank you. Real compliment. I mean, I, I feel that life. very deeply. Yeah. Thank you. I needed that. I'm today. glad. I'm so <laughs> glad. Well, let's talk about Sue because we've mentioned her. Um, so Sue, like Sue. I said, is sort of is sort of Mandy's frenemy, their roommate. And of course, like we all have complicated relationships with our roommates, yes. including our partner sometimes, if yes. you happen to cohabitate with a partner. It's complicated. Sometimes my husband is my frenemy. Yep. It, it is you. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So Mandy like loves Sue, but also Sue drives Mandy nuts. She seems annoying. Like right she up was top, annoying. she seems annoying. She needs to be entertained all the time. Yeah. And you have to have some empathy for her because like Mandy, this is a little girl who is alone in the world. We don't know her backstory. We don't really know like what's brought her to the orphanage. Maybe she has a really sad story. She probably does. But she really needs Mandy's like constant attention, approval, validation, love. And when Mandy starts disappearing to go to this cottage that she found, Sue has a lot of questions. And I thought that the way that Mandy responded to Sue was so realistic. And again, like Julie Andrews could so easily have made Mandy this character who like immediately includes Sue or is at least like more honest with her and welcomes her into this adventure that she's on. But no, Mandy is like so real to the way that kids behave, especially kids who maybe feel as though they don't have anything that's their own. Like Mandy, even more than other kids, doesn't want to share because she's never had anything before. So why would she want to welcome somebody else into this like secret clubhouse that she's found, especially because she's an introvert. Like she's not a kid that wants to go play games at the cabin. She wants to go and like just kind of bask in her alone time, which like I am so in touch with. And I just, I love that we get to see Mandy's very honest reaction to Sue, just quite frankly, asking too many questions. Yeah, I know. The, I, it happens pretty quickly in the story where we meet Sue and, you know, Mandy mentioned she's going to go on a shopping trip or something like that. And Sue was like, oh, can I come with you? Mandy is like, uh, no, girl, but um, I'll show you what I get afterwards. She's, she offers yeah. her this little biscuit of, of goodie. And then Later we meet Sue and Sue's like, you know, I looked for you and I couldn't find you. And like, where were you? And poor Mandy is like, trying to live my life, hon. Like, please leave. And yeah, like right up top, Sue is just really like all up in her business. That would drive me nuts. That That's like not the kind of friend you want. No, she's not really giving Mandy any space to be herself. But Sue does end up saving the day, which again, I liked. Like, I like that Sue is allowed to be annoying because a lot of kids are annoying. Yes. And Sue is also allowed to have a moment to be the star and to do something good. A little redemption. Yeah. A little redemption. She is the one who discovers that Mandy's pneumonia has become extremely dangerous. She finds Mandy in the cottage and alerts matron birdie to the situation which then means that mandy can be saved because she probably would have died if sue hadn't been 
stalking her through the woods and like <laughs> alerted <laughs> alerted the adults to the situation that was going on. So yeah, Sue also gets to be complicated and nuanced, which is great to see. I want to talk about the notes that Mandy finds in the cottage because yeah. ultimately, like, I love the Richardsons. Yes. Happy ending. They adopt Mandy. Like, they take such good care of her. They make her feel like seen, loved, understood, all of those things. Love them. I do have some questions about Bill Richardson, who, again, is the owner of the land on which the cottage sits. Yeah. And we find out at the end of the book that he is the one responsible for writing a series of notes that Mandy finds, one of which says, for the little girl who comes here, hope you like the garden, an admirer. It's the last part for me. (laughs) Because he had seen her. Right. Like, it's not as though he just noticed that somebody was hanging out there. He later on tells Mandy that he saw her and he was like, oh yes, like I saw that you were a little girl who was hanging out on my property and I wanted to make you feel special. Mm-hmm. I know that the phrase unadmirer can be taken in many different ways. Yeah, The word, like the verb to admire has many definitions. I'm sure we could analyze them in depth. But the way we think about the phrase unadmirer, especially when it's signed on a letter, it has a certain implication that like did not feel great to me coming from a grown man to a 10 year old girl. I think the other part that adds to it is that at the beginning of the, of the book, she talks about seeing an estate where a lonely prince might be living. And then later when he comes to rescue her from the cottage and she's in this like, you know, pneumonia haze where she's like half seeing things. She describes him as a white knight on a horse coming to get her. And so then later when she kind of comes to in in his home, she realizes that he is the white knight who saved her. And I think those combined with the note for me made it feel a little bit where it was like uncomfortable. And, you know, like I know that that was not her intention, but those couple of things together felt a little icky to me. And I also hope that you're going to touch on the mom's description of her soon-to-be stepbrother or uh, brother, because that was really uh, awkward <laughs> as well. Yeah, the, these the men in this family, um, and I guess just to wrap up my thoughts on Bill, like I think part of the reason it felt icky was because he turned out to be so not icky as a yeah. human. Like he was so lovely. I wonder if the note would have bothered me, like a little less if he maybe did have some weird intentions or seemed predatory in any way, but Bill doesn't. Bill's like no. wonderful. And so it was strange that like, I just didn't buy the fact that he would have, at least by 2022 standards, like a guy like Bill Richardson wouldn't write that note. But yeah, so Anne and Bill have this son named John and he comes home for the holidays. And Mandy's upset about this, which I get because she's had the Richardsons all to herself for this whole time. And then she finds out casually that he has a son, which like weird that they didn't mention that earlier. And I don't have all of the descriptions written down, but Anne like basically acknowledges the fact that like her son is like tall and handsome and all of these things. Yeah. And then, and then Mandy gets really flustered by him when he shows up because he's a few years older. And I would imagine Mandy hasn't really been around a lot of boys her age. And Anne says, I think if I were your age, I'd be rather overwhelmed by him. You feel you should try to like him because he belongs here. It must be very intimidating, especially after your illness. He must make you feel you could never keep up with him. Again, Anne is lovely. I love her. I actually like the fact that she like leveled with Mandy in this way. I mean, she's kind of talking shit about her own son, which is messy. But like, (laughs) I like that she's like, I get it. You know, he makes you feel a little uncomfortable. It's going to be okay. I hear your cat and I love that your cat is chiming in. Please do not feel like you need to quiet your cat. Please, I I really agree with you on this. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Cat, whatever your name is. I like that they have that honest conversation. And at the same time, strange that you're like, I know my, my son is like so intimidating. Yeah. And the other way that she just, the first way she describes him is she just says like, I think you'll find him very handsome. Oh, right, right, right. Which is just like, I I was like, I was like, I think I know how the story is going to end. And that's sort of a weird way to describe your soon-to-be <laughs> brother. But, but okay, yeah. I will look past this. Yeah. 
The other subject that I wanted to make sure we discuss before we start to, to tie up this conversation is the matter of luck, because there's this question of luck that's brought up several times throughout the book. Um, in the first case, Sue describes Mandy as lucky. She's like, oh, Mandy, you're so lucky. Like Things like this always happen to you. Of course, you would be the one to find the cottage. And then at the end of the book, Mandy kind of repeats this back to Bill after she's been brought into their home. And Bill says, I suppose luck does have something to do with it, but you're a very special little girl. And I think you're strong and not afraid to go looking for your life. You know, I think you could be a good example to the orphanage children. And I, I don't quite know what I think about all of this. I think the question of like luck is obviously a much bigger conversation. People have strong feelings about it. And everybody, of course, can draw their own conclusion about that. I think this question of like, being lucky versus like being special like that was really interesting to me as a message being communicated to children and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that well the thing is like for me in reading this like none of what Mandy does or experiences felt like luck to me (laughs) you know like catching pneumonia that could have killed her didn't feel lucky to me and her finding the house like to Bill's point it was more that she had the kind of drive and curiosity to go after something and and to try and make it her own. So I didn't really even connect with that idea of of like this is lucky and I think it's weird to to your point to like try and teach that to the other orphanage kids like how how would you say like I I hope you all get lucky enough to find a cottage or, you know, like that's not luck really. That's just like explore your world, like go after things that are curious to you. Like that's, it, it didn't feel like the right word to me. And I feel like with, in regards to Sue, like of course Sue thought it was all luck, you know, <laughs> that's like, right. that's like something that your frenemy would say to you, like, oh, you're so lucky that Allie, you have this podcast. I mean, you just fell into it, right? Like you didn't put any work into it. You're you're so lucky. You know what I mean? It's like this thing where it's like, well, that's not luck. I just had an interest and I pursued it and I, I have a podcast now. But yeah, it didn't feel correct to me. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think that Mandy was lucky. Like you said, Erin, she had like a very serious illness, but she also like did what she had to do to get what she wanted. Yeah. She may have been the first kid to stumble upon this cottage, but she also she planted a garden. She found the seeds. Like she was yeah. doing tools. None of that is yeah, left. yeah. She snuck around. She like did whatever she had to do to like make this a reality. I think that Bill's statement kind of weirded me out a little bit, just because it was this like feeling of like exceptionalism of like oh well you're yeah. special right, and I think. Like, yes, what happened to Mandy wasn't luck, but also maybe if another kid had found the cottage first, like it's not to say that another kid wouldn't have done that. And so I don't know, it just, that was a weird moment for me too with Bill. That is a lot in these orphan stories too though, right? Where it's like, even if you think of like the musical Annie, right? It's like Annie is the one, yeah, like who got out of the orphanage and she's the special one. So yeah, I, I guess that's a common theme in these, right? Right. It's like you have this like little bit of magic that makes you more deserving of getting out of this mm-hmm. situation than your peers. And that I don't, I don't love. But like you said, I think it is fairly common in these stories. Yeah. I wonder why they do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It, it I feel like it probably ties back to some old like hero's journey Mm-hmm. convention kind of right. stuff but I wish it wasn't so I don't know it just it feels like you're um setting this one like chosen person apart right and the fact of the matter too is that like you know in most of these stories if not all of these stories from decades ago like all of these main characters are white kids yeah they probably all come from like a specific kind of background and we don't get this, but like, I would imagine there are other kids at the orphanage who might not be white. And mm-hmm. so Mandy being like the white little girl who like is presumably cute and like has yeah while quiet, like a sunny disposition, like she is right. Everyone describes deserving. her as charming and yeah. Right. Yeah. Not all kids are charming and right. a lot of kids are not charming because of what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And so like, 
Bandy can make that impression on people yes. because of her particular backstory. So just things to think about everybody. Um, not to say that it takes away from my experience with this book at all, because I really loved it. Erin, how would you, how would you describe the overall experience of reading it? No, I really, I really felt like it's funny because I, I went on Goodreads to see what other people had said. And a couple of other people had started out the book the way I did, where they were like, oh, I was like, kind of wondering like what kind of evil orphanage situation is this <laughs> and then discovered that actually that's not what kind of a story this is but for me yeah it just felt so warm like drinking a warm cup of tea and feeling really um, good afterwards and so this was a book where I was like oh I would really love to read this to my daughter when she's old enough one of those experiences and sometimes you go back and I'm sure you've had this experience too where you're rereading and you're like oh, I totally forgot how problematic this book was. But um, I think Mandy is a book where, you know, it feels good to read it. And um, definitely look up that YouTube recording too, because listening to Julie Andrews read this book is just a magical experience. I'm going to link that in the show notes for sure. This book, now that you mention it, the way you described it, Erin, it reminds me of like an aged up Madeline a little oh, bit. Yeah. Like, Mandy is sort of like an older Madeline. I think Mad Miss Clavel is like sort of a Madame yeah. Birdie, Matron Birdie kind of character. So if you love Madeline, Mandy is great. And if you do decide to read this to your daughter, please let me know how it goes. I will, yeah. Other than Mandy, Erin, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? So um, I've been on a, a bit of a romance uh, bender, but specifically with books that are maybe not contemporary romance, which is weird because I write contemporary romance. So um, I'd love to give one contemporary romance book that I read recently that I absolutely loved is Love, Hate, and Clickbait by Liz Bowery. And it's an enemies to lovers story. It is so funny and smart and quick, just like a quick summer beach read. And I want to also give kind of a, a less contemporary uh, out of the box one that I'm reading, uh, which was, I would say, Cold Wicked Lies by Toni Anderson, which is an okay. FBI romantic suspense book, which I had never read before and uh, was really pleasantly surprised. That book involves a cult and I'm very into cults. I kind of like Same. get obsessed with them. Yeah. So I found it really interesting. Well, those both sound really good. I love the title of the first one. Love, Hate, and Clickbait is a great uh... Oh, it's so fun. I know. It's really, really fun. It just came out this year. Great. Well, I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. And Erin, I will also include links to your books. You have a new book coming out next month as this episode drops for better or for worse. Speaking of great titles, I love the title <laughs> of this book. What can you tell us about your new novel? Congratulations on it. And what should readers know before they pick it up? So for Butter or Worse, the way that I sold it, I pitched it as um, if Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry from the Great British Baking Show had to fake date in order to save their careers. So it's um, two celebrity chefs. Uh, one of them quits live on air and they find themselves in a situation where their careers are starting to really tank and the only way or hope they have of resurrecting it is is pretending that they're fake dating. So I would describe it as like a rom-com, enemies to lovers, really kind of fun summer read. Uh, but it also deals like my my main male character has panic attacks and anxiety, which is something I've dealt with my whole life. So it was kind of fun to to show that um, through the male point of view, because we don't see men dealing with mental health a lot in books. And uh, my female lead deals a lot with sexism and also um, being a female chef, which only 7% of kitchens in America are run by women, which is a crazy statistic. So I, I talked a lot about that in the book, but it's, it's fun and pretty much perfect for summer. It sounds perfect for summer and listeners know that the only thing that I love as much as reading is reality TV and perfect. that includes baking shows. <laughs> so it's right up my Me alley. Too. My husband and I are in a big top chef oh, moment right now um, with some really awesome female chefs. Yeah. So I will make sure that readers and listeners know how to find your books. Erin, including this new one. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you. You too. And I wish you all the best with this new book. Thank you so much, Allie. Bye. Bye. 
SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.